Well, good morning to you again. Um, I'm going to do something today I've never done before. I'm going to co-preach with Colin. Yes, get ready. I'll do the first and third part, and he'll come in in the middle. So just so we don't throw you, that's what's going to happen. Here's how we'll start. Anybody ever seen Dr. Zhivago? Anybody ever read Dr. Zhivago? I know. It's easier to see the film. Um, you know, that story takes place during the Russian Revolution. Uh, Omar Sharif plays Dr. Zhivago, who's not only a doctor, he's also a poet. And about halfway through the film, um, Dr. Zhivago's brother, who's played by Alec Guinness, who's a member of the party, he's also a, one of the soldiers in the party, he kind of warns his brother that some of his poetry has gotten out and it's being perceived by the party as a little bit subversive. And so his brother says, you should get out of town. And so Omar Sharif, um, Dr. Zhivago and his family are about to get on a train like cattle, and they're going to be paraded or esc- uh, escorted out of, out of the city to Siberia because that's kind of pretty much where everybody ended up during that time, right? This moment is of them boarding the train, and what they're going to find is they're going to encounter a certain personality that will make his presence known pretty quickly. Really fierce kind of, well, you'll see. Attention, comrades. Your train will leave tomorrow morning. Health regulations for the journey. Night soil will be emptied every morning without fail. Straw to be replaced at 10-day intervals. The old straw burned. In the event of fresh straw being unavailable, old straw to be turned. This is disinfectant. Use it. And this wagon is a detachment of voluntary labor. Liar. You are required by the military committee to show them all the systems. One carriage is occupied by sailors of the heroic Kronstadt Sailor Soviet. Are you being good hands? They are idiots. <laughs> Attention, comrades. In approximately 11 days' time, you'll pass through the Urals province, where white guard units... Aided by foreign interventionists and other criminal reactionary elements have recently been active. The military committee assures you that the criminals have been completely routed in that area by Red Guard units under the command of People's Commander Grelnikov. That man. Clap him. The line is definitely clear. Long live the revolution. Long live anarchy! Blixpeter! Eurocrat! Is that necessary? Six volunteers are signed for, and six I'll deliver. I'm a free man, Lex Peter. There's nothing you can do about it. I am the only free man on this train. The rest of you are cattle. He goes by the name of Armory. He knows himself as an intellectual and a rationalist and in his own less styling, an anarchist. And as you heard him say, he believes he's the only one that's free among them all. 
He's not constrained by party or czars or ideology or anything of a political nature. He believes himself to be purely free by way of his own pure intellect and rationality. And the irony of it, he's, he's the one in chains, right? He's forced labor, but he says he's free. The other irony of that moment is that in a sense, he's right. He's right in that one's freedom is primarily a function of an inner freedom. That if you're not free within, you're not free. And if you are not free within, oh, how oppressed are you? Because here's the deal. You can be as entirely free from constraints of an external nature and be entirely enslaved by any number of things that are within you. And by the same token, on the other side of the coin, you can be totally constrained by any number of external forces, but you can exhibit a poise and a composure and a peace and an ability to love that only can come off as a freedom, an inner freedom. Freedom is, in fact, within. He's right. But the question is, how are we free? How do we get free? Last week, Colin, in his sermon on the first half of Galatians chapter 5, began a definition of what that freedom is. This week, he and I are going to flesh out that definition according to the way Paul styles it. And the way we want to flesh out that understanding of freedom is to talk about what are we freed from, what are we freed to, and by what means are we freed at all. From what, to what, By what means? That's what we have to understand if it comes to the gospel. And surely he's going to answer that question. And the one thing we all have to understand at the beginning is this. Inner freedom is in fact true freedom. But that freedom is a war. And that war is within. And we want to consider those three questions to unpack the nature of that freedom. So if you're able, we're going to start in verse 16 of chapter 5. I wonder if you might stand in to hear what he had to say. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If this freedom is, first of all, a question about what we're freed from, then Paul gets down to it in the very first verse of this passage in verse 16. He says, if we, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. All right, it's that phrase, desires of the flesh, I want to camp out a little bit on here, because 
Though it is an accurate Greek translation, it kind of gets lost, especially in modern ears, because let's be honest with ourselves, if I were to go quote the phrase, the desires of the flesh at some bar in Asheville tonight, you know what they're going to do, right? They're going to roll their eyes, they're going to snicker, and they'll say, that's what we're aspiring to, man. Like, life ain't worth living unless I find the desires of the flesh. Angel Mencken um, defined a Puritan this way. He said, a Puritan is somebody who is worried that somewhere out there they're having fun. (laughs) And so when you hear, kind of throw shade on the desires of the flesh, you might think he's just trying to incarnate that, shall we say, dismissive definition that Mencken offered of Puritanism. He's not. When he's talking about the desires of the flesh, he's not talking about some sort of prohibition on desire altogether. This is not a variant of Buddhism that says desire is an illusion and your problem, and the sooner you get rid of desires, the better you'll be. He is not talking about an adoption of pure asceticism when he talks about the desires of the flesh. Instead, he's talking about this. That phrase refers to a situation in which the object of the desire and the degree to which you want it combine into a toxic situation. And the word he uses so compactly, which we refer to as the desires of the flesh, is this Greek word, epithumia. It's used quite often in the New Testament. It's not just an ordinary desire like a kid wants to cut a slice of cake. This desire is a strong desire, a desire that will go unabated until it's satisfied, a desire that is not just flipped off very easily. That's what epithumia is. Now, there are several instances in which this word shows up in the New Testament in a very positive light. Jesus himself, on the night he's betrayed, when he has his Passover meal, he says to his disciples, I have longed to eat this meal with you. Epithumia, I've longed. Paul himself, in another letter to another church at Philippi, he says, I long to depart this earth and be with Jesus. Epithumia, deep, profound longing, both in a positive sense. But both Paul and Jesus and Peter and John and Jude also use this word epithumia in a much different and a more negative light. And in those light, in that light, he's talking about this, an over-the-top desire. The kind of desire that, if you will, makes a good dog break his chain. A desire that, if left to itself, will run amok, a craving that will dissolve and degrade and frustrate you. That's epithumia. Uh, Back when I liked the series The Blacklist, where James Spader, you know, plays this really cool and composed um, guy that just sort of knows everything about the criminal mind, um... I mean, how many soliloquies can you do about walking on the beach talking about an 80-year bottle of wine? I don't know. But earlier in the series, Raymond Reddington is the character he plays. And one day when Raymond Reddington is talking with one of his own criminal adversaries, he kind of warns him sort of as a gesture to him. And he says this, man, don't let your passion become your sickness. Whether it be an evil thing or a good thing, a noble thing, a thing you like to do, a thing that nourishes you, your passion can still become your sickness, epithumia. It's what we're out to be freed from by way of the gospel. Passions, even things for good, can become your sickness, and it's not because of the thing that you desire. It's not the object itself. It's about the heart that desires it. 
And so you heard Paul began to rattle off this very long list of vices, starting around verse 19. And you might think, it's like, oh, Lord, once again, here he is, steps into Puritan mode, a la H.L. Mencken. What's he doing there? What he's doing there is this. All of those things in that list of vices have one thing in common, if you listen to them really carefully, and it's this. They all are the desire for things in excess of their worth. Ascribing to them a value that they cannot bear the burden of. It's talking about an expression of self that is living almost exclusively, if not entirely, for oneself. And so, you know, you could break up those vices in different categories, but just just take a few of them. What is sexual immorality about? It's about gratification purely for oneself. What is sorcery? It's about appealing to whatever dark forces that you have access to in order to gain power for yourself. What is jealousy, if not trying to desperately secure love just for yourself? What are fits of anger and dissensions and rivalries, if not just any number of disparate efforts to satisfy one's own demands? This is all talking about life when the self is unchecked and unbridled and only answerable to oneself. Now, I'm going to dig deep here in my repository of quotes, but this is a line from, of all places, the 1926 Commission on Crime by the state of Minnesota. Now, that's a deep bench, right? Here we go. Listen to what they had to say about kids. And you're going to hear this and you go, wow, blow my mind. So remember, 1926. From Minnesota. It's really cold there. All right? Every baby starts life like a little savage. Uh Uh-oh. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch or whatever. Deny him these and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. And what this means is that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, or a killer. And we think, man, that's harsh. That's so over the top. But look, can you imagine your own self just for a minute If mom or dad or whoever raised you never said no, never constrained, never put boundaries or parameters on you, can you imagine what you would be like? Some of you right now are leaders of cell groups. You would more likely be a leader of a cell block. (laughs) This thing about epithumia, it happens to us naturally. It's our default position. Now, for Paul to raise it is, is to say it's a craving of a self that is based upon a belief that you, yourself, is of highest importance. But he speaks of it so fiercely, not because we think that if we grow up into adulthood or that we have good parents, that we will necessarily be free of epithumia. It's not enough. These desires persist, and they take you and other people down, And the problem is, most of the time, we're not aware of it when they're true of us. I mean, look, just take sexual immorality, just just to begin with as one example. It's where he starts, it's where I'll start. Um, 
sexual morality is speaking of intimacy outside the context of trust, outside the context of covenant, which you and I might want to call marriage. And you don't have, I don't need, you don't need me to tell you that infidelity wreaks havoc in your world. But interestingly, in 2004, in a publication of the Scandinavian Journal of Economics, of all places, there was a study by Dartmouth College who asked 16,000 Americans about their level of happiness and how many sexual partners they had. And they correlated those sets of answers. And by that study of 16,000 Americans, those with the highest level of happiness had this number of sexual partners. One. Huh, surprise. You go outside of that realm. You go one more than number one. Then what have you signed up for? You've compromised your own well-being. Some might think God is a killjoy or that Paul is being puritanical in a negative sense. Actually, maybe he's trying to rescue us from our own epithumia. It's why he goes where he goes. And if you were listening carefully, you knew that this is not merely about loss or immediate deprivation in the short term. It is a loss of goodness now. It is an experience of exasperation and frustration now. But he also says that the heart that is habituated on those vices will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's his words. What does that mean? It might mean something like this. If the heart is habituated on those vices, if it's sought to be free of God by making a God of oneself, then that heart risks being treated like a gentleman and being free of God forever. That's what he's out to free us from. If you had to boil it down, I know this slide is a long word. Let me just put it to you this way. What are we being freed from in the gospel? A view of ourself that leads us to pursue certain things in an over-the-top way that will lead to frustration and degradation now and an even greater loss in time. That's what he's out to free us from, which I know is pretty dour. And that's why we need to bring in Colin Quick to rescue this moment from its actually its dourness. We've been freed from something. What are we being freed to? On that question, Colin has come to our rescue. Colin? Thanks. It is um, it's a special privilege and honor to be able to share ministry with you. And Amen. It's been a joy to do that, too, so thank you, even though we're both pretty long-winded, um, and people are probably getting nervous now that we're both up here together, <laughs> um, given our last track record of my sermon last week being about 45 minutes long, <laughs> so, but we're going we're gonna to do our best here. Um, how many of you ever read the book by Henri Nouwen called um, The Prodigal God, um, or have seen that book, The Prodigal Son, that's it, The Prodigal Son. Um, it is a beautiful piece of work. If you haven't read it, it is certainly worth your time. But right in the front cover, there's a fold-out piece, and, it, and it's a, a picture of Rembrandt's painting called The Prodigal Son. And um, Henri spent some time in the museum gazing at this, this portrait in St. Petersburg, um, Russia. And in... And just sitting in front of that painting and, and absorbing the beautiful art and being um, captivated by it, he began to pull out things out of the story that, that made more sense to him. He saw things he hadn't seen before. 
Um, Henri Nouwen is one who has taught me an appreciation of art myself. And, um, but what's interesting about it is that it is, that the book is about a, was inspired by a piece of art. And the piece of art was inspired by a message that's out of scripture. And so we see the expression of, of art coming from the centrality of, of the message here. And we've been talking a lot about, um, the law, the relationship to the law, as we've talked about in weeks past. And today, Patrick is talking about what it looks like uh, to be, uh, what are we getting free from? And we're going to talk just a minute about what, we, what we're free to. And there, there's a difference. Uh, years ago, uh, there was a young lady that was doodling on a piece of paper, and I happened to see the paper, and I walked over to look at it, and she quickly snatched it away so I couldn't see it. And I'm like, I want to see what you're doing. And so she eventually showed it to me. And it was beautiful. It was there was a lot of giftedness in, in her ability to to express herself in art. And I'm like, why are you not why are you hiding that? And why are you not in art? And she's like, because I, I saw instantly she had an artistic spirit. And she said, well when I was a little girl and I was taking an art class from a very well known artist, is that um we were painting the still life and um she was single digit years old. I don't remember how old she was. But anyway, she was painting this this uh, still life, and the art teacher was re- moving around the room, and she came to her piece, and she goes, no, 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 what did you do? Why? <laughs> and so th- her eyes got big, saucers, as, as the teacher is condemning her artwork because she used the wrong colors, and she was using the wrong lines, and all this other stuff. And so it terrified her. And she realized immediately that she couldn't live up to the standard of the art teacher. Um, and so uh, she kind of got shy about expressing herself artistically. Well, the law, that relationship with the law has changed into something beautiful. It's no longer that, um, that oppressive um, slave master. Instead, now it's a beautiful masterpiece. It's like sitting in front of a beautiful masterpiece done by Rembrandt or another famous artist who you fill in the blank with who you enjoy the most. And then believing that there's an art teacher behind you telling you you have to replicate what you're seeing. And it has to look exactly like that. And if not, then, you know, you're a failure. Um, the, the goal of our lives is to replicate that piece of art. Well, the good news is, is that the art is already completed and God has completed it for us. We don't have to complete the art. We don't have to replicate it. It's already there. And so what does the fruit of the spirit mean? The fruit is actually a description. The fruit of the spirit here is actually a description of what freedom really looks like. What are we free to? Um, and what we're free to is enjoying the beauty of God's art, enjoying the beauty of the Holy Spirit himself, of God himself, of being in a relationship with an indescribable artist who has given us this indescribable beauty through his word. And since the, there's no art teacher slamming us and telling us that we have to do it right, instead we can, we can be in wonder. We can notice things that we never noticed before. We can be curious. We can, we can engage the art. Um, but most of us tend to think that we have to create our own piece, which is what? It's a forgery, right? If, if you do it really well, then chances are people are going to think you're plagiarizing or that you're a forgeress. Um, and if you, if you do it poorly, will people get that? <laughs> but nonetheless, is it um, the, you're probably asking, what does art have to do with fruit? And it's not because I'm going to the still life situation here for those who are artists. Um, is that I believe that the fruit of the Spirit is... Um, is basically the Holy Spirit manifesting his art through us. It is a finished art 
that God has already done perfectly on our behalf. And therefore, the Holy Spirit is making visible the reality of who God is in us and out of us. And that is his work and not mine. So in essence, um, freedom means that we are free to bear fruit. Let's, I want to make a few observations about that, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Patrick. But uh, the first one is the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It's one fruit. There's not fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. It's singular on purpose because it's describing one fruit. That fruit is love. Every other word that's, that, that follows there is a description, a further description of, of what love is. And we know that it's not an exhaustive list either. So it's not just about there being nine fruit, right, that you may have heard or I may have heard. Is It's actually a description, but it's not exhaustive because it says at the end of this is when it says such as these demonstrates that I could go on, but I'm not going to. And so um, the fruit then is one fruit. And that one fruit is love. And if that's true, then we are freed to love. We are freed to be loved because we can't love unless we are being loved, right? Um, Fruit is produced by the Holy Spirit. It is not a work of ours. We can't do it. We can't replicate the masterpiece. And we don't have to because he is reflecting that in us. A fruit is relational. It's intended to be attractive and to invite people into um, to come over to it, to enjoy a fruit is intended to be refreshing and nourishing and even to replicate because inside of a real fruit, there's a seed. Um, and that seed um, replicates itself unless you're a, gra- a seedless grape, which is a botanical freak. Um, and so anyway, we're, the fruit always has something in it that's alive and growing and, and able to reproduce and this fruit, though, is not a feeling. It's not how you feel at the time. It's not whether you're feeling loving, patient, or kind, or joyful. So it's not about feeling as much as it is a state of being. It is what is. Um, it is a picture of, of what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us. Fruit is evidence of gospel freedom. If you want to know if you're free or not, if you're enjoying your freedom or not, then there's, there will be fruit. And if you can't see your own fruit, which sometimes we can't, then we can ask others around us, what fruit do you see in my life? What Do you see love coming from me or not? Um, and remember, love is not necessarily touchy-feely. It's honesty, but it's honesty and grace and truth. Um, so fruit is not so much a feeling as it is evidence of the presence of God. And fruit is received. It's something that the tree doesn't do itself. It's, it is being produced through the tree, um, in a sense, so fruit is received. It's kind of like um, if you've ever seen these beautiful moons that we've seen over the last um, few months, uh, the supermoon, the blue moon, all these, the eclipse and all that other stuff. So our eyes are to the sky, and we see this beautiful moon. Uh, and why is it beautiful? Because it's reflecting the radiant beams of the sun. And why is it, how is it doing that? Because its face is turned towards it. If you want to know how to bear the fruit of the Spirit, it's not because you're trying harder to be any of these things or to have these things in your life. It's because your face is pointed towards the Creator, it's towards the artist. That's when the fruit of the Spirit is reflected in us. So it is a reflection. So love is reflected, um, but it has to be received in order for it to be reflected. And all of this is true of all of this description. Um, and so there is, we see it in a lot of different ways. Of, of if I'm sitting on my front porch in front of, in the sunlight, then I'm absorbing sunlight. I'm not doing anything to help that sunshine. 
I'm not doing anything to make that day more beautiful. But whatever is happening is being reflected on me, and I'm receiving. Um, and so uh, fruit, then, is an expression. Let's just say it like this. Fruit is the performance art of the Holy Spirit. You like performance art? This is how the, you know the Holy Spirit is real and alive and involved in someone else's life because you see his performance through the fruit of the Spirit. And so um, fruit, then, is to be consumed. It is there for us to enjoy. It is there for us to, um, to enjoy being fruit bearers. Um, the tree is not the fruit. We don't go cut down apple trees and eat those. Um, the, the apple bears the, the fruit. Sometimes um, in, we get confused. And we think that, um, that eating the apple tree, the one who bears the fruit, because it's not bearing fruit correctly, we need to cook it <laughs> and eat it. Um, that is not the solution there. Um, fruit is not the goal either of our lives. If, if your f- goal is to be more fruitful and to look more like the fruit of the Holy Spirit, then your goal is lesser than what, what, is, what should be and what is. Because what is our goal? Our goal is to be in relationship with the Lord. Our goal is to reflect back his beauty and his righteousness and his holiness, not my beauty, not my righteousness, not my holiness. And some of us become fruit inspectors of other people's fruits. Um, And the honest-to-goodness truth is that we have to ask ourselves, what are we fixated on? What are our desires and passions focused on? Are we really that captivated by the beauty of the Holy Spirit and, and having that ongoing relationship with him? Or are we focused on some other thing? If we're focused on the fruit, then our fruit will wither. If we're focused on the creator of the fruit, the master, the one who is doing the performing art through us, then that shows through us. So what do we have to do to bear fruit? What is it that, that, we, are free, that we are free to do? In one sense, we're free to do absolutely nothing. And that sounds weird, doesn't it? So you're going to have to fix that. The, uh, the, uh, but the fruit sometimes is it's not something that we do. It's something that we reflect. And um, how we do that, if we turn it into a work, we're going to miss out on the beauty and freedom that we actually have. Um, remember that our work, if there is any, is to put our faith completely in the finished work of Jesus and not on our own work not on our own finished product, but on him alone. Um, and so how do you, um, how does this fruit of the Holy Spirit work? It comes from dependency on Christ. It comes from filling your heart and your vision with him, our vision with him. And so I've heard some people talk about praying for some of the fruit of the Spirit, like don't pray for patience because if you do, then God's going to make your life really hard. Um, that's so opposite of the truth. When patience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it's what the Holy Spirit produces in us when our eyes are fixed on him. When the beauty that we seek is already there and we're not trying to replicate it, we're only reflecting it. And that makes a big difference in in how we express our freedom. Um, So walking in step with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, we're free to walk with him and enjoy him. Um, The great prophetess Kathy Tricoli once wrote years ago um, a song and um, it's very simple, but it says this. And I've learned my lesson well. With my eyes on me, I fell. And there's no one left to blame because it's me who brings the pain. And all I must do is die to me. That is the way you make me free. I would give all my dreams, I'd get everything just to have you living in me. 
when I'm walking on my own and my heart grows cold as stone, Lord, your heart must break in two when I walk away from you. Um, the goal here is just to have you, Lord, Holy Spirit, living in me. That's the only goal. Anything else we can turn into a work, and it's, and it's dangerous. So I um, encourage you to enjoy your freedom by enjoying the artwork and the beauty of, of Christ and the law of God. And we're going to wrap this up with Patrick bringing it home. Thanks, man. How's that? Yep. Thanks. <laughs> Colin makes my life simpler in innumerable ways, and he makes it simpler in how I finish the sermon. Because when we get to the question about by what means, then, are we freed from those desires that hold us captive so that we might bear fruit for God, the fruit of the Spirit, it's pretty clear if it's the fruit of the Spirit, then it's by the Spirit that we bear that fruit, that we are assisted, that he is not there just to announce something or to equip us. He's there to be present to us, to indwell us, as you heard Colin say. How do we? How are we freed? By means of the Spirit. But by means of the Spirit in the context of a war zone. Paul made it very clear that the desires of the flesh wage war against the desires of the Spirit. They are so strongly opposed that that's a fight. And that's in the fight in the context of your heart. And so, what is the Spirit doing in that war zone in order to assist us in being free to bear for this fruit? It is not mostly or mainly by saying, hey, don't do that. Or, hey, yes, do that. Or, bad Patrick, good Patrick. That's not what he's doing. We are freed by the Spirit in the context of a war, but primarily for what has ultimate claim on our heart. For what has, if you will put it, as others have put it, for what has title to your heart. And that's why he says in verse 24, those of you who belong to Christ have crucified their desires of the flesh. One's desires are bound up with what has ultimate claim to your heart. If your mom has ultimate claim to your heart, you will do whatever she wants you to do, whether it's good or bad. If your boss has ultimate claim to your heart, you don't care about whether it's acting with integrity or not. You'll just do what they say. If your own pride has claim to your heart, then you will follow that. But if the Lord has claim to your heart, you will follow Him. It's not about behaviors then. It's about not only how you understand who you are, it's about believing whose you belong to. How then does the Spirit do that? He leads and guides, and by Jesus' own words, He brings to remembrance everything that Jesus says. But you know what the Spirit mostly does? He's there to confirm to you over and over again that you belong to Christ. How does He do that? To answer that question, we're going to go back to that train ride on the way to Siberia. Because Mr. Armory, who is convinced that he's the only one that's free, is about to get another revelation about freedom. And that revelation is wordless. There, the one who is so persuaded, convicted that his freedom is bound up with pure intellect and pure rationality, there on a train ride on the way to Siberia with everybody asleep, He sees something he wasn't expecting. There in this nameless, faceless married couple, cherishing one another, 
he begins to wonder if that freedom that he thought was so freeing is actually trumped by a freedom deeper still. A freedom in knowing that you are cherished. By what means are we freed? To be convinced in our deepest parts of our heart that we are cherished, that we belong to Christ, not because of something that we have done or because of the fruit that we have borne, but because of what He did and the fruit that He bore. And when that connects, when that is persuasive, you have had a revelation. And then the whole conversation stops becoming whether I should do this or whether I should not do that. It simply becomes a question of who do I belong to? And if I belong to you, then why would I want those things that you find reprehensible? That's how he frees us. To convince us that we belong to him. You have to sit with that. So where does this all begin? And for anybody who's a believer, it's really a question of how do we begin again and again and again? How do we have to begin over and over again? Because, look, let's just be honest. We slip back into those desires of the flesh. We begin to want things in excess of their worth or to think that it's our only path to happiness. And we have to rediscover that we are, in fact, free because we belong to Christ. Every single time you, you, you drop into the desires of the flesh, it's because you think that you belong to you. So where do we begin again? I think it's three things. It's not a formula. It doesn't happen overnight. But I think it begins with a recognition. A recognition of the importance of the fruit of the Spirit. I know that those are virtues and that they are ethics. And I know that you heard Colin say, which I would heartily underscore and affirm, that it's not about trying to prove something to God. But as Colin also said, the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of your freedom. Who wouldn't want to live by the fruit of the Spirit? Who wouldn't want to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control being so situated and operative in your heart? Who wouldn't want that? You have to recognize the importance, the freedom, the life in the fruit of the Spirit. And then when you get that, you have to create some margin in your heart for reflection. And today's as good as day as any because you, you want to know how to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy? Here's what you do. If at any point, if today, at some other, to whatever extent, you feel like you are not manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, then here's a good opportunity. Ask yourself, why? Why isn't this true for me? Now, even as I say that, you, you have to acknowledge that you live in a body And there are plenty of instances in which your body, your body, irrespective of everything you're doing in any given moment, can conspire to keep the fruit of the Spirit from being true in you. If you didn't get any sleep last night, I dare you to try to be patient. If your adrenal glands are shot or you don't have enough potassium or something's going on in your brain right now, look, your body is up against you. I do not want to reduce or oversimplify the situation and just saying, if you'll just think long enough, everything will be fine. I'm not saying that. Your body is something to account for. But I will say this too, that oftentimes when the fruit of the Spirit is not true of us is because we have entered into certain patterns of believing things that keep us from believing that we belong to God. And therefore, it is a time for reflection to ask ourselves, what am I believing right now? 
but it keeps me from thinking that I belong to him. But when you do that, to avoid getting into this pattern of morbid introspection, you have to ask yourself that question, but look at your reflections through the lens of the gospel. Because it's through the lens of the gospel that says to you, you are his, not whether or not you're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. You are his because he did. And because he did, you can. And in him there is life that you may. You have to understand in the time of that reflection that he is disciplining you as a parent would be a child, but not whispering in your ear that you're condemned. You have to create margin for reflection once you recognize the importance of the fruit of the Spirit. And in that course of reflection, it will not be surprising to you or it should not be surprising to you that in the course of that reflection, tears may flow. It has for me. It will for you. And in the context of those tears, when you discover or realize again how far your heart is far from the heart of God, then you get into the real world of repentance. There's a reason Martin Luther said his very first thesis of those 95 theses was that all of life is a life of repentance. Because he knew the only way to be free is to repent. And by repenting, it is not merely saying to yourself, I will will myself to be more loving. I will will myself to be more peaceful. I will will myself to be more gracious. It is not, that is not repentance. Repentance is asking yourself the question, when did I stop believing that God was for me? God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also together with God give us all things graciously? I forget. I needed to hear it yesterday. I'll probably need to hear it tomorrow. But our repentance will always rest on that truth. And we will have to sit with it. And we will need one another to remind us too. That's how we're freed. It's not quick. But it is true. And by his spirit, it may come to pass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.